Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, it is good this morning to see uh, a few uh, um, college students who are uh, back for, from uh, summer break, or at least dropping in this morning. Uh, we can't wait to see everybody back uh, in a few weeks. If it's your first time, welcome. We're so glad uh, that you are here. Uh, if this is your 142nd time, uh, we're also glad you are here. If you got a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to get started in Ephesians chapter 6 uh, in just a couple, couple of minutes. Um, every household has rules, Right? Some of the rules might be the same. Uh, for instance, you don't jump on the bed. It's probably fairly universal, uh, unless some dads want to break that rule, uh, which we maybe have occasionally done in the Nichols house. Uh, some of them are uh, radically different. When we were in Central Asia, one of the common practices there when you enter a household is you take off your shoes. Um, maybe that is the practice at your house. That is not the practice at my house, and I'm not very good at it. I prefer actually to keep my shoes on, uh, but I had to get used to uh, taking off my shoes whenever I went into someone's house. Uh, some households had different rules that are very specific to them. Uh, in the Nichols household, there is a rule. Uh, no singing is allowed before 11 a.m., uh, that was a rule that was come up with very early in our marriage before we had kids when we uh, realized that the attitudes of the two people waking up in the Nichols family were very, very different in the mornings. Uh, and so one of us, which will remain nameless, wakes up very happy, ready for the day, singing songs. The other one, maybe a little more gradual in the wake-up process and doesn't want to put up with terrible singing. So every... Household has a few different rules. What we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 6 is Paul's now turning his attention to a different set of rules for the household. Just big picture. Remember where we've been in the book of Ephesians. First couple of chapters, we learned about the amazing blessings of our new life in Christ. Uh, that God, by his grace, rescued us from sin and death and brought us into a relationship with him as adopted sons and daughters. And then we saw because of that new life that we have a new community. Saw this in the end of chapter two and through chapter three, uh, that we've been brought into this new faith family called the church, where we all share this new life in Christ in common, where God has broken down barriers that used to separate us and brought us together into this one multi-ethnic global family of faith. And then over the past couple of chapters, he's turned his attention to some new standards. He said, because of your new life and because of your new community, there's some new ways that you're going to conduct yourself. You have new standards to live by. And so this included the way the church relates to each other. We saw the end of chapter four, beginning of chapter five, included as we saw last week, the way husbands and wives relate to each other. And we'll see it changes this week. Uh, or there's new standards this week for some relationships in the household. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Are both my kids in here? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2, honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not only by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether uh, he is a bond servant or is free. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So he talks about two sets of relationships. The first one is a relationship between parents and their children. The second is relationships between servants and their masters. So just start with verse 1. How are children supposed to relate to their parents? We have a fairly clear instruction, obeying and honoring. But before we jump into what that means, I want to point out something I think is pretty remarkable and it's easy to skip over. Let's not miss the magnitude of the fact that Paul, writing the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, has something significant to say to children. Does it not in and of itself elevate the value of a child? And in fact, this would have been shocking in Roman culture, where often children were viewed as an inconvenience, something that complicated my own ability uh, for as a parent to maybe have any sort of illicit relationship that I wanted or to divorce any way that I wanted. It was a complication. And so let's not lose the magnitude of the fact that our scripture addresses children directly. I think it's beautiful. He says, children, obey your parents. In other words, also the expectation is that a relationship with God is a relationship that a child can have, and the expectation that God has for his people is an expectation he has for even the smallest of his children. So then he says, very simply, these twin instructions for children to obey uh, the idea there is to listen under, to heed, to hear the direction from your parents and to put it into practice. And then to honor, he quotes from the fifth commandment, uh, that you're to honor your father and mother. This is a lifelong commandment to extend to your parents the honor and respect that they deserve. Why? Why? Well, he says in verse one, because it's right. What does he mean by that? I think the idea here is uh, that it is the pattern that all societies and cultures follow. It's apparent. The best thing that could happen for a child most of the time, with a few exceptions we'll talk about, most of the time is to be obedient and to honor their parents. That even people who aren't Christians see the importance of the parent-child relationship and training and nurturing and growing up a child and how it is vital for kids. It's right. And then he says that this commandment, the fifth commandment, comes with a promise. That promise is that it might go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now remember, Exodus chapter 20 is when the Ten Commandments are given. What's going on historically in that part of the story? What's going on historically is the people of Israel, God's people, have fled slavery. 
delivered by God through Moses. They're entering into the promised land. They are now in charge of governing themselves. They don't have a master. They don't have a Pharaoh, right? They are setting up their own government, the own pattern of their society. And so God gives them 10 commandments to live by this one right in the middle of the fifth one. He says, honoring your parents is important because this new society that you are setting up is going to be based on the family unit. That your future success of your nation is actually in a way dependent on this relationship between parents and children. At its most basic level, we see that true for us too, right? You ask a school teacher the difference between a good class and a bad class. What is it? Involve parents, right? I was a youth pastor for 15 years. It makes a difference, right? It makes a massive difference. We see that principle at work. Now, this promise isn't one of those promises that you, uh, like a formulaic A plus B equals C. That's not the way this is meant to be understood. This doesn't mean if you obey your parents' kids, if your mom says, clean your room this afternoon, and you clean your room, then uh, that one act of obedience ensures that for the rest of your life, everything is going to go perfect for you, right? It's not what it means. The idea is it's a pattern, and if you can learn to obey and honor your parents so that pattern gets inside your life and helps you to navigate life better. What about parents? How are parents supposed to relate to their children? It says, fathers, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, this word fathers is used other places in the scriptures to refer clearly to both parents. Uh, so I don't think this is exclusively for fathers, that this is uh, a title given to include parenting. Now, perhaps I as a father need this instruction more than my wife. Let's just go ahead and say I as a father absolutely need this instruction more than my wife to not provoke my children to anger. It's a prohibition. Don't do it. But the role of a parent, specifically a role of a father, is not to stir up anger or animosity or deep-seated frustration inside their child. Can we just agree it's hard to be a kid right now? It's easy to be angry, and it's easy for our kids to be given over in despair. They experience constant comparison on social media. It is a sickness getting inside of their bones. Our girls suffer from the curse of having to look at the latest digitally enhanced or surgically altered picture of the latest celebrity to compare themselves against. All of our kids, specifically our boys, are targeted by pornography. You don't have to find it Convince your friend in middle school to let you see it. Stumble onto somebody else's hidden stash. It searches us out. And can you imagine mom and dads? Perhaps the devastation that produced in your life of having immediate constant exposure as an 11, 12, or 13-year-old, even younger. They can't escape this constant comparison of living up and having to be someone else. They carry pressure in their pocket, their purses, or their backpacks on their iPhone. I got to escape the school bully. Our kids do not. 
They're bombarded by divisiveness and hatred by us, by the way, by what we put on the news in front of them or the way we talk about other people in our society. Plus, on top of that, all the regular kid stuff of trying to succeed, doing their best in school, facing rejection, dealing with peer pressure, and finding friends. It is a pressure cooker, and we need this command more than ever. Paul, 2,000 years ago, speaking right to our current predicament and saying, hey, 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 let's not make that worse. Let's don't provoke our kids to anger. Stir up constant frustration and despair. And so we have to ask ourselves as parents hard question. Is our home a refuge? Or is it a place where these sort of pressures extend into? Do we unfairly compare our kids? Do we discipline our kids inconsistently? Do we express our love or approval? Are we withdrawn? Are we actively doing things as parents that would provoke anger? frustration inside of our kids? It's a good question to ask, right? Then he says there's a positive part of the instruction. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Maybe a different way to phrase it would be, don't give your kids a reason to hate you later in life. Uh, We got got a joke. Uh, You've met some pastor's kids, right? Some of them are well-adjusted, some are not, right? And so we do have a little joke in the Nichols family where we just straight up ask our kids right now, is this what you're going to counseling for later in life? You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of a reality. We're all doing the best we can, right? We don't, be, we don't want to be actively involved in stirring this up. We want to help. So then the instruction is bring them up. I love John Calvin says it should be translated. Let them be kindly cherished. Raise them. Nurture them. Bring them up like you would raise up a garden. And in this nourishing environment, he says it should contain two things, discipline, correction of wrong. Kids, I'm sorry, you're not getting out of discipline, all right? The Bible actually has a positive view towards discipline when used appropriately. That is for our good to correct us, to teach us what is wrong and what not to do. And then instruction and active teaching is what is right. Do you see the way those things fit together? That you need both? Correcting wrongdoing, but also actively teaching what is right and good. And then he uses this phrase, of the Lord. Which means as parents, our parenting is more than just doing what seems right to us. But we discipline and instruct around what God thinks. That the scriptures is an important parenting tool for us. So we see the reality of what God has revealed about his world. We're actively involved in trying to get our kids to conform to God's world and his design. Which also means, parents, uh, we need to be careful about false narratives or constructing false realities. Especially as your kids grow into preteen and teenage years, they need to know this world is rough. This is a hard place to live at times. And it is not loving parenting to shield our kids from the hard things in the world. But instead, we must, we must 
with patience and love and kindness, nourish, cherish our kids. I think the big picture here is that children are a gift from God that parents should steward well. A steward is a person who has a temp- who's been temporarily entrusted with authority, who's been given the task of managing or maintaining the property or interests of another person for a period of time. That's what a steward does. And parents have God-given authority to steward their kids. One of the best things as parents, one of the best truths that we can understand is our kids are not our own. They belong to their heavenly father just like we belong to him. And what we've been entrusted with is a gift from God to steward into adulthood. We are managing this process of raising kids on behalf of God. Which helps us answer the question then that always comes up with this passage, when am I not supposed to obey my parents and when am I not supposed to honor my parents? When is that over? Well, well that ends when a parent's instruction conflicts with their ultimate authority and your ultimate authority, right? If God is over all things and a parent departs from underneath God's authority to do their own thing, then they're no longer stewarding well. All of those decisions, mind you, are difficult to make and should be made with a lot of scripture and a lot of prayer and a lot of influence from the community. Soapbox, Brandon Soapbox for a moment. Here's what most of you guys want me to do. Most of you guys want me to give you a list of rules that always work all the time so you can take them home and memorize them and do them in every aspect of your life. Not the way this works, man. Not the way parenting works. Not the way following Jesus works. It's just not the way it works. Which is why it is so important for you to be connected with a community of faith, of people that you love and trust that can help you walk in wisdom and sort this stuff out. Some of the destruction that we've seen in our Christian subculture in the past several years is because what people wanted is option A. Man, you tell me what to do from the platform, and I'll just do it. And I don't have to foster relationships with people. I don't have to think through things on my own. I don't have to do any of that stuff. You just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. You draw whatever diagram you want, and I'll just follow the diagram. This is not the way it works. That's why, remember, Ephesians 3, 4, half of 5 is all about what? Your community of faith. This isn't isolated from that. All right, soapbox over. Parents, uh, one thing I want to point out to you that I hope is good news for you, uh, there's a lot of room here, all right? So it also means we can relax a little bit. I don't know if you saw, but there's not a clear commandment here on how to school our children, right? Homeschool, private school, public school, not addressed here. So you have the God-given authority to make the best decision for your family, right? We can relax a little bit. There's actually not detailed instruction on how to discipline your children. There are some other references in the scripture, but it's not like, uh, hey, uh, here is a 228-page book on discipline that you can read. 
You can read that book, and that book might be really great and informative and helpful, right? But what that means is there's a lot of us who are going to figure out a lot of different ways to do this. Not only that, man, every kid is different, right? And all of our kids, if we are nurturing them and growing them up, are going to need something different from us. Just like your tomatoes and your cucumbers and whatever else in your garden might need different things at different times in the year, so do our kids. So let me just say a good word to you if I can. It's okay. Relax. You want to, like, stop comparing yourself to everybody else and what they do and where they went on vacation and how they discipline and what they do for dinner and what, like, it's okay. All right? Take a deep breath. It's going to be fine. Maybe. I'm just kidding. Second relationship, he talks about the relationship between masters and servants. And we have to ask this question first. Uh, what's up with bond servants and why are we talking about them in the Bible, right? Now, <clears throat> often, a bond servant uh, in, in Roman culture is very, very different from the way that we think about antebellum-style slavery in our history books. Often they became slaves for financial reasons, uh, not because they were kidnapped or stolen. Although, uh, with the Roman Empire invading other places, that often did happen. In Roman culture, slaves were actually allowed to receive payment uh, for their work. And the goal was freedom. It wasn't lifetime slavery. So a slave would work off their debt and then be set free. In fact, most slaves were freed by the age of 30. And so it's very different from the picture that we have in our mind. There was one point near the first century of this writing where Augustus Caesar had to pass legislation to slow down slaves or bond servants being freed because people were freeing them so quickly that it was negatively affecting the economy. He's like, hey, well, everybody slow down a little bit. So very, very different from often what we think about. However, just like any other human institution, especially when it comes to these sorts of relationships, I do not want to paint you a rose-colored picture. People were treated poorly and physically abused, treated like property, which is wrong. Add to that on top of all of that going on socially, the church, this was also a complex issue. You know why? Because the church practiced what we're going to see later in this passage, that God shows no partiality, which meant that a bondservant or a slave could be an elder. A bondservant or a slave could be a teacher or a deacon or lead a home group. So could you imagine the complexity of this relationship when a master is sitting in a home group under the teaching of his servant or his slave? Now you see why Paul has to address it, right? It's complicated. There's a lot going on. And it's commonplace. Some estimates say that up to a third of the Roman Empire was made up of bondservants or slaves. Now, I want to pause here because I think this is one of the most compelling aspects of our Bibles. The Scripture doesn't sugarcoat anything. Man, if you're looking for a PG religious text, the Bible is not for you. It is rough. It is straightforward. It doesn't gloss over human frailty or sin, but it speaks into the middle of our mess that we created on our own. 
And it does so in, without pulling punches. And so here, Paul addresses a messy, complicated, difficult, embarrassing issue. So verse 5 says, A bondservant, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Phrase, fear and trembling. Ken Hughes says, doesn't suggest uh, actual fear uh, that this person should be afraid of punishment, but rather he says it suggests Christian reverence and respect for master's position or authority. With a sincere heart, a singleness of heart, meaning that obedience shouldn't be out of hypocrisy or with a divided mind. And then he adds this phrase, as you would Christ. Really, this is the key to understanding this passage. We're going to come back to it in a second. But this phrase, as you would Christ. Remember, we talked about this last week. Paul's setting up the basic Christian ethic, which is what? We treat people the way that we've been treated by Jesus, the way that we want to treat Jesus, not based on their own character or their own actions. Verse 6, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as what? Bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with, the, with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. It's a wild idea. Here's what he said. He said, the thing that should inform the way that you interact with your master or superior or the one who has authority over you should be shaped not by them at all, but this other identity that you are first and foremost a servant of Christ. That you serve Jesus. And so serving someone else is not a big deal for you. You've already embraced the idea of servant. Now look what he does. Verse 9, masters do the same to them. In other words, if you've been given authority over someone else, guess who you haven't been given authority over? Jesus. You know who you serve? Jesus. And so if you're a master, then that same identity of first and foremost being a servant of Christ should shape the way that you relate to other people as well. You see how mutual this is? Even in the middle of a messy institution, that he's pushing for a deeper ethic, a deeper idea, not based just on who has authority or social status, but based on what? Our identity as followers of Jesus that we serve Christ. And so he says to masters, stop threatening, stop abusing, stop taking advantage, stop using your words or your actions to inflict harm knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. That's coming with a pretty big stick. He said, hey, you keep this in mind. But you report to somebody too. You don't have unbridled authority. Somebody's sovereign over you. And that's God himself. So in how you treat people in this relationship, you better believe you're going to be accountable to the Lord. And then he adds this phrase, and I think this phrase did more damage to the slave trade here in the United States and the institution of the Roman Empire. He just says this. And that there is no partiality with him. Reminds of this amazing truth. What's the reminder of this amazing truth? Man, God doesn't play favorites, man. God doesn't do social status. God doesn't do who's belongs to who or who's over who, God sees everybody the same. And whatever your position in life is, 
that does not affect your standing before him. So let me point out something with these two relationships, parent-child, master-servant, that I hope we can see in our everyday lives. Look at the text if you've got your Bibles in front of you. I want to just show you something. <clears throat> Children, obey your parents, what? In the Lord. You might want to circle that. Then repeat that to parents. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You might want to circle that. Verse 5. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. You might want to circle that. But as bondservants of, what does he say again? Of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a goodwill as to what? The Lord. And then finishes in verse 9. Knowing that he, that's the Lord, is the master of their, is, is both their master and yours in heaven. There's no partiality with him. Do you see the repeated theme all the way through this section? The big idea here is the primary factor that determines how we treat others is not their actions, but our relationship with God. In other words, we treat people, no matter their social status, no matter the way authority breaks out, we treat people according to who God is, his character, what he's done in our lives, and not according to their actions. The people don't necessarily earn our respect just by being good people. That we extend to them dignity and respect because that's the way we would treat Christ. So kids, why do you obey and honor your parents? Not because of what they give to you, not because they're fun, or not because they let you do this or that. It's because God. Because God's character. Because the way that we treat others reflects the way that we treat God. Parents, how do we parent our kids? It's not based on their cuteness or intelligence or their own obedience, but what? We make parenting decisions because we believe God has given us certain authority. And that we're responsible to him, accountable to him. How do we deal with authorities at work or at school, with our bosses? People who do have some measure of authority over us, first and foremost, we do it as to the Lord. We treat others based on God's character, not their character. And that is how all of our relationships should be shaped. Right. None of us in this room are in a bondservant-master relationship. That's good news. That's fantastic news. That we have dismantled that institution in our country. We should pray that that continues. But we are in relationships all the time where people have a measure of authority over us or we have a measure of authority over others. And the ethic here is we treat them not based on that sort of authority, but based on who God is and the authority that he's given us. So let me make just a few observations to close about this idea of authority. We have spent the past decade and a half killing authority. We started with experts and we've moved into every area of life where our most, most trusted source on anything uh, is either Wikipedia or Facebook. So we have a complicated view of authority. So let me just add a couple observations. Number one, it seems from the text that God values and uses authority. That God values authority 
And that God purposely places people in positions of authority in order to wield their authority for the good of the people under them. God's design is for authority to be a gift in the home, to the workplace, and in our churches. And that comes with responsibilities for the one under authority, but also the one with the authority, both. And both are responsible to God. Secondly, all authority is stewardship. Good parents know that their children are not their own. They have a great responsibility to raise and nurture and send their kids out into the world. Parents, mature adulthood is the goal. It's not your enemy. Even though it is emotional and hard, pointed out to some friends this morning that I now have a giant of, the, of a son, right? It's like 5'8 or 5'9. I told you guys, I started working out with Mike over a year ago simply so that I could continue to whoop him into his 20s, right? Like, but the goal, if my authority, if Kristen's authority in my kid's life is stewardship, is to send them out in the world as mature adults who love and follow Jesus. It's not to hang on to them forever. Same thing in the workplace. If you have a measure of authority in your workplace, what would happen if you saw that as stewardship? Not just to achieve the objectives of your business, but God-given authority that God placed you in people's lives for their own flourishing, nurture, and care. That would be an incredible shift. You have your job because God put you there. Thirdly, this is obvious. Authority when misused is destructive. It erodes trust. It limits the formation of those under the authority and ultimately it causes people to be skeptical of God himself since God is the ultimate authority. We've seen this in documentary after documentary and podcast after podcast and terrible church story and terrible home story and terrible workplace story after story after story after story, which should remind us, for those of us who've been given any sort of measure of authority, this is sacred. And to misuse it betrays not only the trust of the people under us, but says something about the very character of God. And so as followers of Jesus, we should be the first people who see our authority as stewards for the flourishing of other people, and we should be heartbroken when we hear stories of authority going awry. And then finally, but this, this one is authority when used properly, is a blessing. You ever think about that? And we're so busy pushing back against authority. We're Americans after all, right? We kicked out the Brits. We're going to kick out a bunch of other people too. You know what I mean? We get to do our own thing. Sorry, it was a 1776 joke, I guess. Nobody was going that deep in history with me. Okay. But authority in the home, in the workplace, in the church, when used properly is good for the formation of the character of other people. That's a blessing. I mean, good parents are a blessing. A good boss is a blessing. 
good leaders in a church, that's a blessing. And it can be a blessing in our lives if we'll allow it to be that. So last question. What if I blew it? It's a blessing, right? Some of y'all get all bent out of shape about kids, man. Come on. A gift, a blessing. Kids do what they do. What if I blew it? What if I failed? What if I let my kids down? If I let my employees down? If I let my church down? What if I haven't seen authority of stewardship? What if I provoked people to anger? What if I threatened, domineered, lorded my authority over people? What do I do? Good news is in the text. Just got to look at it backwards. If the expectation is that you and I are going to treat people the way that we've been treated by Christ, the good news is, how have we been treated by Christ? That in the middle of our failure and shortcomings, our own misuse of authority, our falling short at home, the good news of the gospel is God has been gracious to us through his son, Jesus. And there is, all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1, redemption in his name. That's the good news. The good news isn't that you have time to fix it, and you do. That's pretty good news. The good news isn't just you can try harder or that you can make up for it, or Christmas can be extra big this year. The good news is that God is gracious and merciful, steadfast in love and faithfulness, extending his kindness and steadfast love to generations, and that includes you. The good news is is that through Christ, God wants to redeem what's broken. God wants to redeem those who have done some breaking of their own all through his son, Jesus. So mom, dad, boss, church member, pastor, whatever, school teacher, whoever you might be today, there is good news for you. Good news. That if you feel like you've fallen short, God is ready to extend grace to you. You can be forgiven. It's Ephesians chapter one. You can be redeemed all through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good news, friend. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.